this last week, you know that I preached a long time. Uh, I've heard that a couple of times already. That's okay. You just might as well get used to it, okay? Um, we have started our new series. We are talking uh, about uh, Easter. We're pushing toward what I believe is the most important uh, event in human history and the most important and most defining moment of our religion. That's one thing that sets us apart from any other uh, world religion, any other um, set of beliefs in this entire world. We can go through all of we can go through Confucianism, we can go through Buddhism, we can go through any of those other isms and talk about all those other religions. And the only thing that sets us apart, the one major, not the only thing, the one major thing that sets us apart from all of them is that their God is dead and ours is alive. That Jesus Christ came and lived on this world and he lived and showed us an example, an incredible example of how to live how we should love each other, the things that we should do for each other, how we should obey God fully, how we should serve Him un unconditionally. And then He gave His life as a sacrifice for our sin, and the story doesn't stop there. That three days later, after His death burial, He came back to life. He appeared to over 500 different people, which is kind of odd because... Dead people normally don't do that, right? He came back to life, he appeared to a lot of people, and he ascended to heaven, and now we talk about him some 2,000 years later. Why? Because nobody else has ever done that. Why? Because he set himself apart as the God of the universe, as the God of all creation, by saying that he has power over sin and death. We say that phrase all the time in church. He has, he has the power over sin and death. And Jesus proved it time and time and time and time again. If this resurrection did not happen, then nothing that we do here matters, right? Our theme verse for this entire series is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It should be on the screen. It just says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then nothing else matters. Nothing that we do makes any sense at all. It all hinges on this. And I told you last week, I'm going to give you just a quick, real fast recap of last week. We talked about how um, there's a movie coming out this month called The Case for Christ. It's written, uh, it's based off of a book that Lee Strobel wrote uh, years ago called The Case for Christ. I recommend you grabbing that book and read it. I've talked to a couple of people already who have, have gotten that, have already been to dive through and dig through this book. I've read it probably three or four times. It's that good. Um, and so Lee Strobel, the author of the book, kind of sets out as an investigative journalist to prove that Jesus was not God and that God does not exist. And by the end of his book, he became a believer. He became a Christian. He said, I cannot doubt the facts that are laid out in front of me. I have to put my faith in Jesus. And so he wrote this incredible book, and then uh, now they're kind of adapting that to a movie and kind of showing his journey through uh, the conclusions that he made. And, and we're going to use that book and some of, the, some of the info in the book as we talk about this for the next couple of weeks. I'm not going to preach the book, uh, but I am going to use some of the information out of it, some of the, the data that he uh, collected and gathered so that I don't have to reinvent the wheel and, and do that all over again. I said last week that there are three elements of faith. And, and this is kind of important to kind of understand where we're coming from and why we do, uh, while we're doing this uh, this morning. The first, obviously, is the spiritual element. Yes, we all have to be drawn into faith through some drawing work of the Holy Spirit in our life. There's this spiritual element of faith. The Bible talks about it all the time, about how Jesus comes to us and he draws us in to himself. 
The second element, in my opinion, this is all Matt overall, is the emotional element. Some people connect on a very emotional level to the Holy Spirit and His work. They can say things like, that. I just feel like the Spirit is here. I can just feel the presence of God in this place. I know that God is speaking to me because I can feel Him pulling at my heart or directing my life. That is, a, that is a very good and a very right thing that God connects with our emotions and connects with us on an emotional level. But there's also this third level that we often don't talk about in church circles because it's harder to kind of get to. But it's this logical and intellectual level of connection with God. Some people are very logical thinkers. They need things to be put together in a very specific order and manner. Some people feel like it needs to um, kind of make sense a little bit before they can really dive off into something. Some people are just so scattered and they're just kind of all over. We call them really uh, really artsy people. They just, it doesn't matter if things make sense. It doesn't matter. Those kind of people just connect more emotionally. And some people are a little bit more structured. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if you read through Scripture and if you read through the Bible, you're going to see that things are very structured in the Bible as well. We just don't talk about them because it takes a little bit more to get into those. It takes a little bit more understanding, a little bit more time. But if you read through the Old Testament and the New Testament, both, you'll see this incredible structure of Scripture and how it does really fit together so well. And how the things that happen in the New Testament are all kind of referenced in, in the Old Testament. How the Old Testament kind of pushes forward to this, this coming Christ. And what we're going to look at today is see how all that pulls together to Jesus. Last week we talked about the Gospels. Remember we talked about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who these guys were. We talked about can we trust what they said was true and correct? How, how long after the death of Jesus did these guys start writing things down? And some people say that it was up to 60 and 70 years. And what we did some math last week and found out that even down to 25 to 30 years after Jesus' death, they started writing the Gospels to prove what was true and what was untrue. So that people who lived in the time could kind of corroborate that story or combat that story, right? No, that did not happen. You need to take that out. Or yes, this did happen. You can leave that in. And then we talked about the, the authenticity of the Gospels, and we kind of we compared that with how fast they wrote about Alexander the Great. Y'all remember that? Alexander the Great, the first biographies written about Alexander the Great were written 400 years after he died. And we, can't, we just say those are great, those are true, that must be exactly what happened. And we compare that to 25 to 30 years after Jesus died, we go, well, okay. If there's any room for kind of a folklore to be gained, it's over 400 years. And here's Jesus just 25, 30, 35 years after his death. There's not a whole lot of room for that. We talked about how... Archaeology kind of confirms all the things that are written in the Bible. And if there's a hill or a mountain or a well or a city, then we found just about every one of those. And we compared that with the Book of Mormon, remember? There's no person, place, uh, thing, manuscript, anything, carving, nothing that's in the Book of Mormon has been found to be archaeologically proven. That's a big word to come out of my mouth on a Sunday morning. No, that's been proven. It's not found. It's not there. And then we talked about the manuscripts and about how we have over 5,000 Greek New Testament manuscripts. And that the closest one to that is Homer's Iliad with 650. And we say, well, we can compare all these manuscripts and all these things and point back. And if you put not just the Greek and you get the Aramaic and all the other different languages, we've got over 24,000 copies of the New Testament that date back just a couple of years after the death 
of Jesus. And it's incredible to see some of these words that are written. And we talked about, remember, the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and the things that we found within the Dead Sea Scroll about how Jesus quoted Scripture and it didn't really necessarily match exactly the Old Testament Scripture, but the Dead Sea Scroll has that Old Testament Scripture exactly matching what Jesus said and it was written 30 years before Jesus was even born. And we just all left last week going, this is incredible. It just points over and over and over again that the Gospels are true and accurate and correct and we could trust them and we can trust what they say because they say all the same thing, that Jesus was died, he had been dead, he was buried, and he has come back to life and we can put our hope and trust in, and we can bank on that. And so this week, I want to look at Jesus. I want to look at the person of Jesus and TJ had come out in the hallway Monday. We uh, we have staff meetings. We try to do those on Monday, Tuesdays, and uh, we were talking about some stuff. And, and we'd gone back to our office, and TJ kind of came out of his office and said, "Hey, do you know where you're going on Sunday? Do you know what you're going to talk about? I'm going to start start getting structuring the service around it." I said, "We're going to talk about Jesus." And he just stopped, got his head aside. He said, "Don't we always?" <laughs> I said, "Well, yes, but this week specifically, we're going to talk about." who Jesus was, and really we're going to try to answer the question, was Jesus who he said he was? Was Jesus who he says he was? The answer to this question, we're going to take it in two different ways. We're going to talk about who Jesus, who did Jesus really think that he was? And is there any other proof besides his own testimony about who Jesus was? So if you've got your Bibles, go to Mark, uh, Mark chapter 14. This is going to be kind of our our major passage of Scripture this morning, we're going to bounce to a lot of different things, and so you need to be ready uh, to kind of move around Scripture with me this morning. Mark chapter 14, we'll start in verse 60. This is after the betrayal by Judas. This is after Jesus kind of went to the garden to pray with his disciples. Remember, they kept falling asleep, and he kept coming back and waking them up. Um, the mob has come, and they have taken him off, and now he stands before the high priest, and they are accusing him they're accusing him of, are you who you say you are? Because here's the thing. Okay, before we read this, this is what we need to understand. There are a lot of people, a lot of people who will say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus never put that title. He allowed, he waited for somebody else to say it about him, and he didn't argue with them. He just kind of went, well, if you say so, and he kind of went along about his business. We, and they reference back, remember the, the story about, uh, I think it's in Matthew uh, chapter 20-something, where he and the disciples, Jesus and the disciples are sitting around, and Jesus asks the question, he says, who do people say that I am? Y'all remember that? And the disciples kind of pop up, and they're saying, well, some people say that you're a prophet, some people say you're Elijah, other people say that you're just this important teacher. And Jesus kind of turns the question more, a little bit more personal, and he says, well, who do you guys say that I am. And Peter pops up. We talked about this on Wednesday night. And he kind of jumps in and he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, Man, you're not smart enough to get that answer by yourself, Peter. Good job. That must mean that you're being obedient to the Holy Spirit because God must have given you that because, Peter, we all know you, right? You're not smart enough to get that yourself. And so Peter answers that and he says, you're correct. And so he never, like, never really officially says that he's God. And to those people, I say, read 
the Bible, right? He says it over and over and over again, and this is one of the most uh, kind of interesting passages, I think, out of that, uh, out of that context. So here we have Jesus standing before the high priest. They're asking him, who are you and why are you doing this? And we st- pick it up in verse 60. It says this, Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, Jesus said. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. There's a couple of interesting things about this passage of Scripture we want to talk about. Okay, The first is this. The title they are accusing him of. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Christ, Greek word for Christ is Christos. It means Messiah. They're saying, are you the Messiah? Are you the guy that we've all been waiting for? The interesting thing about this is the guy who's asking the question is the high priest. It's his job to look for the Messiah. That's his whole job. He goes into the Holy of Holies once a year. He makes a sacrifice for all of Israel. He's trying to make make it okay for everybody to do all the things that they've done wrong. His one main focus is, I've got to keep an eye out because I believe that the Messiah is coming to redeem the people of Israel. They think he's coming, and Jews still to this day believe that the the first coming of Jesus is going to come, and he's going to take over. He's going to rule. He's going to come with authority. They didn't get it that Jesus came in this humble servant to point the way back to God. And this guy whose job it is literally to look for the Messiah says, Are you the guy? Are you who we're waiting for? And Jesus says this incredible phrase, I am. Now, if you know your scripture, you know what this references back to. If we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and Moses' burning bush moment, right? Remember, Moses is kind of doing his thing, tending his sheep, and he goes around the corner, and there's this bush that's on fire, and it's not being consumed. And Moses says, well, that's kind of weird. I'm going to go over here and check things out. And the closer he gets to it, there's this voice that comes out of the bush. And God begins to speak to him, and he says, take off your shoes, because where you're standing is holy ground. And Moses, in just fear and wonder, takes off his shoes, and he approaches this bush, and God begins to communicate with him through this bush that's on fire. And he tells him this incredible plan that he wants Moses to do. He wants to lead his people out of Egypt, out of slavery and bondage, and he wants to take them back to the land that God has promised to them. And Moses has all these questions, obviously, wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all have incredible amount of, well, how are we supposed to do this? What am I supposed to do? How, what am I supposed to wear, right? That's the question everybody asks. What am I supposed to wear? We're going out tonight. Is this like a dressy thing or an undressy thing? Moses is like, what am I supposed to do? He has all these questions. And one of the most important and incredible questions asked in Exodus chapter 3 is, who am I supposed to tell them sent me? Moses says, if they ask, what do I tell them your name is? And God, for the very first time in Scripture, tells us his name. And he says, I am. Tell them that, I am sent you. In the original language that translates into the word Yahweh, we know that, right? If you've been in church circles long enough, you understand that. And so this name of Yahweh is so 
respected by the Jews that they rarely even said it in the New Testament. It was such a holy and separated name that they didn't, they didn't even say it very often. In, in the Old Testament, it's mentioned almost 3,800 times. It's 300 and some odd times in Exodus alone. But here in the New Testament, it's just one of those words that it's just so reverent and so set apart that we just don't say it very much. And when they said, are you the Christ? And Jesus answers, I am. It immediately took them back to this burning bush moment. This high priest who knows Old Testament scripture better than you or I or any of us in this room. He knew exactly what Jesus was pointing back to. And he was going, okay. We just asked him if he was God, and he used God's name to answer it. I'm guessing these two things overlap each other fairly well. And so we think, okay, was this the only time that Jesus said this? Maybe it was just a coincidence. Maybe he was just answering a question, and he wasn't really even thinking about his answer. But the problem is, if you read Matthew chapter 6 and Mark chapter 14, disciples are on the boat, right? And, and Jesus comes out walking on water. Y'all remember this, remember this story? And the disciples in the boat look at Jesus, they see him, and they go, oh my gosh, it's a ghost. And they start to get really freaked out, obviously. And Jesus comes along, and he says these incredible words, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. The problem is, is our English translation of that, the original language says, don't freak out. Well, it probably doesn't say don't freak. It says, take courage, I am. Take courage, Yahweh, do not be afraid. Two other examples, Matthew chapter 6, Mark chapter 14, do not be afraid, Yahweh. John chapter 8, 58, Jesus is defending himself against the Jews who are basically saying that he's demon-possessed because he's able to drive out demons. And they're going, well, you must be demon-possessed because you're talking to demons. And Jesus just gave this incredible speech about a house that's divided among itself would not be able to stand. And he's like, why in the world would I, if I'm demon-possessed, try to push out other demons? That doesn't make sense. I'm here in the authority of the Father given to me, and I have all authority over all things. And he says this incredible statement. They start talking about um, Abraham. They start throwing back Old Testament things. And, and, and Jesus said, Abraham was excited to see me. And they just, they just lost their minds. They're like, you're not even 50 years old. You can't talk about knowing Abraham. Abraham lived thousands of years ago. And Jesus comes back and he says, before Abraham was, I am. And everybody just there went, oh, this is incredible. I remember the first time I read this passage in John chapter 8. I was, let's go all the way back, 1998. Some of y'all remember that. It was an incredible year, 1998. Don't remember much about it. I was a student worker, and I'd just taken a group of about 50 students to uh, Creation 98. It was Creation Fest 98. It's so basically a Christian Woodstock, if you can imagine. There's 150,000 people out camping out in this big, huge open meadow, and all day long there's all these big-name speakers that were showing up, and at night they had all these big bands that would show up, had these big, huge concerts. And on the way back from Creation 98, we went through... Gettysburg Battleground. We drove through the battleground of Gettysburg. This is an incredible, beautiful place up there. And I and some of the other adults were just, we, I mean, we were soaking it up. We were loving it. This is great. Students were just hating life, right? They were just in the van. Can we just be done? Can we just drive back to Arkansas, please, right? And so we spent the night uh, right outside of Gettysburg in this little motel that was kind of a, kind of a neat little place stuck back up in the woods and 
uh, I got up that next morning early and sat outside on this bench and was kind of reading and uh, kind of writing in my journal. And, and I got to this verse about Jesus talking to these guys. And, and I looked up and there was all these rolling hills and the fog had just kind of settled in and the sun was coming up. And I was thinking back about the battleground and about the, the Civil War and all that stuff that happened through Gettysburg and, and thinking about how it would be to live back then. And then I, I kind of went back and I thought, well, how incredible would it be to live back when Jesus lived and be able to walk around with him and see him kind of in action. And then I got down to that verse 58 and it says, before Abraham was, I am. And I just remember in that moment, I just put my journal down and I put my pen down and I was like, okay, God, you are so much even bigger. You're so much bigger than I even give you credit for. That you are eternal. That even before Abraham, way back, Genesis, Abraham was. God, you are there. And you have always been there. Jesus looks at these people and says, I am everlasting. I am Yahweh. I am God. And then, uh, back in Matthew or Mark chapter 14, our original passage, he, he says this other little phrase that's pretty, pretty incredible if you st stop and think about it. Jesus mentions that the Son of Man, the Son of Man, and see people read that and they go, see, here he is, he's automatically contradicting himself. He says, I am, he makes this big statement about Yahweh, pulls back the Old Testament God, and then he says the Son of Man. He completely contradicts himself but if you read Daniel chapter 7 turn in your Bible Daniel chapter 7 this is an incredible passage of scripture it talks about the son of man Old Testament Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 says this in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like the son of man Coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Son of man is synonymous in the Old Testament with the Messiah. And when Jesus says the Son of Man is coming, they all immediately recognize that he was talking about the Son of Man, the Messiah is coming. And Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man over 30 times in Scripture. Do you not think that he believed that he was the Son of God? That he was God himself? He says it over and over again. John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. John 10, 38, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That word begotten translates into unique and beloved Son. John 14, 7, if you know the Father, you know me. Church, even the sign over his head when he hung on the cross, said what? King of the Jews. Why'd they put it there? Why'd they put it? Because either he said it, or people believed that he said it. And they put it there to mock him, but what they didn't know is they were putting it there proclaiming the fact that he was the king of the Jews. That he was the God 
that they have been waiting for, the Messiah that had been promised in Old Testament, is now straight before them as the Christ. We call him Jesus Christ for a reason, because he is Jesus, the Messiah. He is that. He believed that about himself over and over and over again. And one of the greatest examples is in Luke chapter 11. Turn with me, Luke chapter 11. We were just close to that. Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 11, verse 20. This is so cool how the Old Testament and the New Testament go right hand in hand. We're going to see how this works right now. Luke chapter 11. Jesus is talking about his ability to drive out demons again, right? And he says... If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Exodus 31, 18. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. Deuteronomy 9.10, Moses reminding the Israelites of everything that God had done for them. And he says, the Lord gave me two stone, two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. And Jesus is saying, the same finger of God that wrote the commandments that you guys are holding so fast to is the same finger that can drive out demons standing before you today. He and I are the exact same person. I am him, he is I, we are one Yahweh. Over and over and over in Scripture, Jesus affirms the fact that he believes that he is the Christ. The book, Case for Christ, says this. The best thing about Jesus is that he didn't just claim to be God. He backed it up with feats of healing, power over nature, transcendent teaching, divine insights about people, and his own resurrection from the dead. No one else but God could do all that. Jesus said it, he believed it, he proved it over and over and over and over and over again that he is God. So it leads to the second question that we started off trying to answer this morning. Jesus believed it. He allowed other people to believe it. But is there any other proof besides his own his own opinion about himself and his own work that he did that kind of point back to that? Is there any other proof? To that, I say, welcome to the Old Testament, right? You should read the Old Testament. You, if you don't, then you're missing out. You're missing out on an incredible wealth of knowledge in the Old Testament. It, and, and most of us, listen, we're just going to be honest because we're good church people in here. Most of us, if we pick up our Bible, we're going to read something. We're going to read something in the New Testament, right? Because we think, well, we're going to read something about what Jesus said or about the church or about how we, should be, how we should be living on this side of Jesus. And not many of us take the time to go through the Old Testament and see this incredible picture that's been painted for us. And, and really, how everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. How everything in the Old Testament points to the need of the Savior of someone to come and, and redeem God's people. And so we have the Old Testament. Remember, we got this God who created everything. And then 
he makes this incredible covenant with Abraham. Remember, we talked about that just a few moments ago, about how the stars in the sky, his descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. That's going to be just incredible amount of people that come from this promise that God made to Abraham. We have Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons, right? And Jacob's 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, we're going through the Old Testament really, really fast. The 12 tribes of Israel begin to multiply and begin to have a lot of people, and that's where we call um, the, the, the people of God, the Israelites, are the people who were from Jacob, right? That was their dad. That God named, renames Jacob Israel. That's why we call them the Israelites instead of the Jacobites, okay? Got it? So we've got the 12 sons who are now the 12 tribes. And then through a crazy series of events, one of the boys ends up over in Egypt. Dad and the rest of the boys come over and join him, and they're in Egypt now. A few years later, Moses rises up, and God has the burning bush moment. He says, take the people out of Egypt and bring them back to the land that I'm supposed to bring, that I want for them. It's inhabited, but you guys can do it. And Moses gets the, oh, baby, let my people go moment, right? And we have all the plagues and the, and the, and the frogs and the locusts and the, the Passover and the angel of death. And, and Pharaoh says, take them. Get out of here. And so he takes this million-plus people, and they start making this voyage. And the next thing we know, we're under in the desert for 40 years. And Moses' successor, uh, Joshua, gets to finally lead them into the promised land. And once they finally get all the people driven out, that they're supposed to be driven out, um, the people start kind of wanting a king. We want a king. Everybody else has a king. We want a king. So we have Saul. And Saul didn't last very long because he started messing things up, and David comes along. And David has, is the king, and it's described as a man after God's own heart, right? And David has a son, Solomon, who Solomon has a whole bunch of girlfriends and a whole bunch of wives. And the next thing we know, we've got a divided kingdom, right? We have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom gets taken by Assyria. And not long after that, the southern kingdom falls and taken by the Babylonians. And then while they're in exile, we have some prophets that come along and trying to get the people of God to do the will of God and come back to the land that God's given them. And eventually we start seeing these people start migrating back and we have all these other Old Testament prophets that are pointing to the need of a Savior because the people of God keep messing everything up. And all this points back to the great, incredible need for Jesus. What did they need from the very beginning? They needed salvation. They needed a Savior to come and to make them right with God again. What happened from the very beginning? Adam and Eve, they had one rule. Don't eat the tree in the middle of the garden. And what they do? They ate the tree in the middle of the garden. The one rule! And then we come along and we get Moses and we get the Ten Commandments and we have all these ten and guess what? It doesn't take us very long to start breaking those either. The majority of us don't get past number two. And all this says we need something because we can't do this on our own. We need someone to save us. We can't do this on our own. We need a Savior. We're going to talk tonight about Melchizedek and while Melchizedek was mentioned in the Bible and how important he was because he was a priest and a king and how that points straight over to Jesus because Jesus is a priest and a king. Now, incredible, we have this incredible need and desire. So how do we know that all these Old Testament things are pointing to Jesus? We call these prophecies, right? Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. There's, over, there's a number of different numbers you can get 
over 350 Old Testament prophecies. Some people say 350, some people say 358, some people say up into the six and seven hundreds. But for sure there's about 350 Old Testament prophecies. And, and here's the great thing. Jesus fulfills every one of them. Isaiah 53. This incredible passage in the book of Isaiah. People probably know it by heart. When I begin to read it, you're going to go, I remember this. This was written 700 years before Jesus was alive. Isaiah writes these words. He was despised and rejected by man. Surely he took upon our pain and bore our suffering, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This all points to Jesus. In Isaiah, we, we see the picture of the virgin birth. That he was going to live in Nazareth, rejected by his own, died with criminals, and buried with the rich. In Micah, prophet Micah says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Genesis and Jeremiah say that he's a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from the tribe of Judah and the house of David. If you read the lineage in Matthew, you can go all the way down through and see Jesus in that same line. In Psalms. Psalms talks about his betrayal, his accusation by false witnesses, that his manner of death, having pierced hands and pierced feet, which, by the way, when Psalms was written, crucifixion had not even been invented yet. It made no sense. Why are we going to sing about this? But we see on the backside, of course, this is what had to happen. He talks in Psalms talks about his resurrection, how they're going to cast lots for his clothes, offered vinegar to drink, no bone in his body will be broken, his side pierced, dying words were given in Psalms. Hosea says he's going to be called out of Egypt. And Zechariah says he's going to be betrayed by a friend. And we read all these things and we go, that all sounds like Jesus. Then we read Acts chapter 3, verse 18. This is how God fulfilled what had been foretold through all the prophets saying that his Messiah would suffer. Luke 24, 44, Jesus himself is saying, this is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that's written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms. All this stuff has to happen because it's written about me. Do you really think, do you really think that the soldiers while they're standing at the cross of a man that they didn't believe in, that they could care less about? Do you think they got together and said, you know what, we should probably cast lots for his clothes because I'm pretty sure that's in the Old Testament somewhere. Well, yeah, we'll go ahead and do that. Okay, we'll start throwing some dice. Do you, do you honestly think that they went along and said, you know, I think somewhere in Psalms it's supposed to stab him in the side, so we'll stab him in the side. We won't break anything, okay? Be sure not to do that because we've got to make sure this, test, this prophecy is fulfilled in this guy that we hate. No! Why would he do that? How could Jesus control where he was born? How could he control the fact that his parents fled to Egypt to get away from Herod trying to kill all the two-year-old babies? And then he came back out of Egypt. Jesus didn't have any control over that. All these prophecies point back to him and him alone. 
the Old Testament, God is referred to as Alpha and Omega, Lord, Savior, King, Judge, Light, Rock, Redeemer, Creator, Shepherd, Giver of Life, Forgiver of Sin, and Speaker with Divine Authority. And every one of those titles given to God in the Old Testament is applied to Jesus in the New Testament. Isn't that incredible? That He is the Alpha and the Omega, the Lord, the Savior, the King, the Judge. He is all those things that they talked about in the Old Testament of God being, they talked about in the New Testament of Jesus being. Mathematician and statistician Brett, uh, Peter Stoner said this. This is incredible. Mark, you can put these up on the screen. That the odds of one person fulfilling just eight Old Testament prophecies, one person fulfilling eight Old Testament messianic Messiah prophecies, is one in 100 million billion. That number doesn't mean anything to you, does it? <laughs> Me either. I read it and I was like, mm, I think he made that number up. Here's what it is. It's one to the five, what is it, 157th power. Ten to the 157th power. That's the number. Ten with 157 zeros behind it. That's your odds. You shouldn't be a betting man. But you shouldn't bet with that, right? 10 to the 157th power. That's one person fulfilling just eight prophecies. One in 100 million billion. One person. He said it like this. That number is equivalent to covering the entire state of Texas with silver dollars, two feet deep. Marking one of those silver dollars with a red X and throwing it out in the pile with everything else and letting a blindfolded person walk around the entire state of Texas, bending down, picking up one coin, and that being your coin. Those are your odds. One in eight Old Testament prophecies. Then he goes on a step further. What are the odds of one person fulfilling 48 Old Testament messianic prophecies? That number is one in a trillion, 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 trillion. That's 13 trillions. I wasn't even going to try to put that number on the screen. Because I wasn't going to try to count that high, right? That just can't happen. Jesus fulfilled all of them. And we see those numbers and we go, that's astronomical. That's unbelievable. That has to be accomplished by God. Listen, church, we just, what I just read off about Micah and Genesis and Jeremiah and Psalms and Hosea and Zechariah, that was maybe 20. 25, 350 prophecies in the Old Testament Scripture, Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. Leads me to this. No one could be Jesus except Jesus, right? No one could be Jesus but Jesus. No one could fulfill all the things that he fulfilled, could do all the things that he did, could perform all the miracles that he performed, all the while living in the moment and saying, all this stuff that was written hundreds of years ago is all about me. Jesus has to be 
Him. Did Jesus believe Himself to be God? Yes. Did He allow other people to believe Him to be God? Yes. Did He allow people to view Him as God and treat Him as God? Absolutely. Did He fulfill the Old Testament prophecies about Himself? Every single one. Only Jesus could be Jesus. And so when we read Matthew chapter 16 where Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We go, yeah. Yeah, you are. You absolutely are. Scripture tells us in John 16, you will know all things. That means he's omniscient. Matthew 28, 20, I'm, surely I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. That means he's omnipresent. Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. It means it's omnipotent. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It means he's eternal. Hebrews 13, 8, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the God from the beginning all the way to the end. Jesus is he. He is God. Colossians 1, 15, he is the image and the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him, and for him. Church, this is the most incredible thing. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Isn't that the most incredible promise? That we look at all of Scripture and how it all adds up and how it all points to Jesus. And the Bible just says, if you confess and you believe, then you'll be saved. But church, can we just take this a step further? Can we take this a step further? Because I believe with all this evidence, this faith and this belief has to have a life change attached to it. It has to have some sort of proof in our life that we believe that it is real. Because let me tell you something, church, I believe wholeheartedly there are people here that think they are saved and they are not. Because they read their Bible and they pray a prayer and they walked an aisle and maybe they even got baptized, but they never really made it real. We had the head knowledge of God, but we never really connected it with our heart knowledge of Him. That we, we know all the things to say in church, we know all the right answers, because we know Jesus was important, but we really don't believe that he's really God. Because if he was really God, then our lives would change. That there'd be something different about us. We talked about this on Wednesday night. In the Old Testament, faith and obedience are inherently tied together. In the New Testament, they're inherently tied together as well. But they're flip-flopped. In the Old Testament, if you, if you obeyed, then you had faith. You had the law that you had to live under. And if you lived under the law, that, means, that meant that you believed in God. And Jesus comes along in the New Testament and he says, Now, see, I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to change the law. I'm trying to fulfill the law. If you have faith in me, then you're going to obey. If you, if you believe in me, then your life is going to reflect it. The things that you do and that you don't do, the way that you live, the things that you say and that you don't say, is going to change. 
There's obedience behind faith. God draws us in to faith with Him. And He says, now that you believe, now that you really know, now that you understand grace and mercy and forgiveness, now let your life be an example of that. See, we still try to put it the opposite way, right? We in church circles try to say, well, I go to church and I read my Bible and I pray and I do this and I do that. Surely I'm saved. No. You have faith first. And then all these things come in behind it. All these obedience things come in on the backside of it. We believe, we understand this Jesus. We've talked about this in probably more detail than you have ever talked about it before. But it's time to realize if what I believe about Jesus to be true, if he is the Son of God, if he has come into my life and saved me and forgiven me for the sin that I've committed, what is my life saying about it? Am I pointing other people to that? Am I just kind of existing? If it's really, really true, is there any evidence of that in my life? If I really, really believe it, am I living it? See, that's, that's the kind of stuff nobody wants to talk about. We're okay with the understanding of Jesus. We can even go through this logically like we did this morning and go, we got it. But to make that Jesus a part of my everyday life is pretty hard. To make that understanding and that faith and that dependence on Him a part of my everyday life is pretty hard. When when things get crazy, it's the first guy I'm going to yell to her. When things go haywire in my life, that's the first person that I'm going to say, I need your help. But when, when I'm living life, just everyday life, is He the most important part of it? Because church, if everything that we said this morning is true, he's got to be. He's got to be the most important part. He's got to be the one thing that drives everything else. Is your love and your devotion and your, and your service to this God King who came and who died and who came back to life again. See, that, you can't hear that and think life just goes on after that. Things can be normal after that. Everything hinges on that. Everything hinges on who the Bible says that he was. And if we believe that the Bible is true and accurate, and if we believe that Jesus was the Son of God, and we believe that he came back to life again, then how can we live life like he didn't? Hey, this is Matt Overall, the pastor here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Just want to say thanks so much for watching our services, whether through our television ministry or our online ministry. We appreciate you so much being a part of Emmanuel Baptist Church, and we'd love to have you come and join our worship service. Uh, Sunday morning service starts at 1030. Our small groups start at 930. And we'd love to have you be a part of it. We've got a lot of different ministries that happen at Emmanuel, from our children and youth that's focused on Wednesday nights to our uh, women's Bible studies that happen throughout the week. We'd love to have you be a part of everything that's going on here at Emmanuel. Thanks for watching.